Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Amen. All of our sins are washed away and our stains are washed away because of Jesus. For those of us who have been adopted into his family, we are in Jonah chapter 4 today. We will be concluding our series that we've titled Relentless Grace. And while you're turning there, I wanted to let you know ahead of time that uh, in three weeks from now, we'll be starting, Lord willing, preaching through the book of Nahum. So I want to let you know ahead of time, you can be reading through that, praying through that. I am going on vacation tomorrow. I will be gone for two weeks, so Pastor Greg's going to be in the pulpit. We've already talked about his messages that he's bringing, some very exciting messages. So he'll be here for the next two weeks. But actually, more exciting than the vacation that I'll be going on is that today, as already mentioned, we're handing out our Global Outreach Prayer Directory, which has uh, pictures of our missionaries' contact info. And we would encourage you, when you leave, to walk out these doors. You'll find someone handing them out to take this and to pray for our missionaries. So Please do that. Jonah chapter 4, let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your amazing grace that washes away our stains. The stain of our sin makes us right with you. Thank you for adopting us into your family. We see what great love the Father has that we should be called children of God. And we thank you for that today, God. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for giving us your Spirit. And thank you for your Word. Help us now as we look at Jonah chapter 4, and may we see you even more clearly, and may you become the treasure of our lives, that we would want to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we don't want to do what we're supposed to do. Maybe it's just me, but being a parent has actually taught me this. I see it in my kid's life and I see it in mine. Why is it that children who go through the same routine day after day always give their parents grief when it comes time to do those things? Taking a bath? You would think that we we had filled the bathtub up with acid, the way they react to going into the bathtub, brushing teeth, putting on pajamas, getting in bed, staying in bed, You would think that we filled their bedrooms with scorpions and snakes and alligators getting clothes on for school. I mean, do they want to go to school in their underwear? That was my greatest fear as a young boy. Socks. Do I I even need to bring up socks, parents? We finally reached the point that we don't care if the socks match. We don't care if they're inside out because sometimes one of our children likes to wear his socks that way. We don't care if they're dirty and they've worn them for three days straight. Do you have on socks today, kids? Great. Praise the Lord and pass the milk. And eat your cereal. We're leaving in 10 minutes. It's kind of how it is at our house. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Michigan, tweeted this a few weeks ago. He said, steady of purpose and swift of foot is not what describes children getting ready for school in the morning. So true, isn't it? Having children is tough work because children can be unruly. 
Sometimes children don't want to do what they're supposed to do. Ask God. He knows all about this. But lest I throw my kids or your kids under the proverbial bus, we adults do this too, don't we? Speed limit sign? I just dare you, speed limit sign, to make me obey you. What about that speed limit sign machine on the side of the road that flashes how fast you're going? How many of you, when you see that, look down? Did you know that you have one of those built into your car? It's it's called a speedometer. You don't need a flashing light to tell you how fast you are going. You've got one kind of built in right there. But we look at it and go, ooh, work, church, etc., There are millions of things that we know we're supposed to do that we don't want to do. And we struggle with that. Why do we struggle with that? We struggle with that because we're sinners. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and that was passed down to us. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to rescue sinners. And we are all in that boat. We are all people who don't want to do what we're supposed to do. And that's Jonah. And that's us. We are Jonah, aren't we? And Jonah doesn't want to do what the Lord has told him to do. Jonah actually wants out of the prophet business. And the best way to get out in his understanding is to die. Jonah would rather die than do what God has asked him to do. Preach the gospel to the Ninevites. How strange that a prophet gets upset that people respond to his message. God's relentless grace has ruined Jonah's ministry. God's relentless grace has destroyed this prophet's ministry in his eyes. How strange to think that the relentless grace and mercy of God would be the thing that would cause a prophet of God to desire retirement and even cause him to desire death. Our big idea today is this. We talked about it a few weeks ago for a little bit. God wants to save you from you. The merciful, compassionate God of the book of Jonah wants to save you from you because both you and I are Jonah. The book of Jonah is about a great, gracious God who wants to rescue us from us. God is on a rescue plan to save us from our selfish, sinful selves. And he does that through his relentless Grace, And he does that through circumstances that we don't like. And he does that through people that we don't like. Look at verse 1 with me. After chapter 3, the Ninevites had repented and turned, changed their evil ways, and see how Jonah responds. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? 
Jonah was mad that the Ninevites repented, that they turned from their evil ways, and that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, had compassion on them, and that he had relented from sending judgment and totally wiping them out. The Hebrew text here says, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned to him. Jonah is steaming mad. And even though Yahweh was mad, at the Ninevites, that his righteous anger was boiling over for them because they repented and turned, he, he cooled off, if you will, because they repented. And now Jonah is the one who is burning with anger. How crazy. This is a, a preacher's dream. You preach a message and every single person responds. Even the cows responded. That's a preacher's dream. In Texas, a preacher would say, yeehaw and amen. The cows even respond to my preaching. Not so with Jonah. He is mad. He is angry. But there's a lesson for us to learn here. Jonah is very instructive here. Jonah is ticked. He's mad. He's frustrated. And where does he vent? To the Lord. At least give Jonah that. At least give him some credit. That when he complains, he complains to the right person. Oh, that we would tell God about the things that we don't like. Oh, that we would pray our frustrations instead of run around and tell everybody else about the things that we don't like. Oh, that we would tell the Lord about what we don't like in his church. When we don't like other people in the church, that we wouldn't tell other people, that we would tell God. It's his church. Tell him. He might be bothered by it too, or he may not. Jonah's beef was this. He did not want Nineveh to be spared from the wrath and judgment of God. But the real question here is why? Why didn't Jonah want Nineveh to be spared? The answer, we really don't know. Perhaps because the Ninevites were a wicked people. We saw that over the last few weeks. The bottom line here, though, is that Jonah was a sinner, and sinners sometimes get bothered by the most unusual things. And I say unusual because it's unusual for a prophet who's preaching a message to have people respond to his message, and he gets upset that they respond to his message. Sometimes sinners get bothered by the most unusual things. We too can get bothered by the most unusual things, the color of carpet, style of music, the way a person dresses, a person's personality. The bottom line here is Jonah is mad, and he's mad that the Ninevites were spared, but we don't know why ultimately Jonah was mad. Maybe he was picked on by some Ninevites as a young kid. We don't know. But Jonah is angry that they repented and that they were not going to be wiped out. Jonah did not like God's way of doing things. He believed that he had a better way of doing things. Jonah wanted control of everything that was happening in his life. You ever think that way? This is not a good plan, God. My way would be better. If you would do this, God, then my life would be perfect. Have you ever thought that way? Of course you have. Welcome to the club. Welcome to Club Jonah, because we're all Jonah. 
Well, what does Jonah say to God in the midst of his anger? Look at verses 2 through 3 with me. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. To understand this passage, we have to realize that Jonah had a Ph.D. in Old Testament theology. He knew the Hebrew Scriptures. The problem here isn't that Jonah does not understand God. He understands God. He knows his Bible. He's quoting one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Jonah's problem is not that he doesn't know the Bible. His problem is that he does not like what God is doing. Jonah doesn't use this verse that he quotes actually the right way. He takes it out of context. His prayer is rooted in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. He's pulling all of the language out of Exodus 34. It's a common phrase that is used throughout the Old Testament. This is like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, if you will. This is how the Israelites thought of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, that he was gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah takes this verse out of Exodus 34. But what was the context of Exodus 34? Chapters 32 through 34, where Moses goes up the mountain, spends 40 days with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, gets the Ten Commandments, comes back down. And what happens to Israel in 40 days? They're already worshiping a golden calf. That is the context in which Moses says, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Understand how crazy the situation is here. God deals compassionately and patiently with stubborn Jonah. Jonah didn't want God to be gracious to Nineveh. But then God turns around and is compassionate towards the stubborn, recalcitrant prophet. He's that kind of God. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. And he is relenting from sending disaster to Jonah. That's the kind of God that we serve. Let me point out one of the phrases used here to describe the Lord. It's the phrase slow to anger. Literally, in Hebrew, it's long of nose. God has a long nose. Did you know that? Did you know that the God that you worship has a long nose? What typically gets translated here as slow to anger in most English translations is the Hebrew expression Eric Apayim, which is literally long of nose. The expression can be slow to anger, patient or long suffering. This Hebrew expression long of nose was used to describe someone who was patient or slow to get angry. Proverbs 14.25 talks about this. Conversely, a person short of nose, in Proverbs 14, 17, was considered to be impatient or quick-tempered. Kind of like our our English expression, hot head or short fuse. That's what it meant in the Old Testament. To be short of nose means you were quick to get angry. To be long of nose means that it took you a while to get angry. In other words, God's nostrils take a long time to flare out. 
Remember the old cartoons where somebody gets mad and their, their nostrils will flare out and, and steam comes out of their ears? It takes God a long time for his nostrils to flare out, if you will. The theology behind this Hebrew idiom, long of nose, is what must impress us. God is patient with his people. We do not perish. We do not get what we deserve precisely because God is patient. And because God's nose is long, he does not treat us as we deserve. He doesn't treat Jonah as he deserves. In fact, his relentless grace will pursue Jonah after his pity party and his wish to die. Look at verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. I love God in this passage because God loves Jonah so much that he wants to transform him so he keeps chasing him down. Why does God pursue Jonah? Why does God pursue his people? Why does God pursue you? Because God wants to save you from you. Because you're selfish. And so am I. And God loves us so much that he says, I just don't want to forgive your sins. I want to do that, and then I want to start this radical rescue plan of your life, whereby I begin transforming you and conforming you to the image of my son. And Jonah is about to figure that out. He gets mad, he complains to the Lord, he wishes to die. The Lord then says, what right do you have to be mad, Jonah? Is it going to do you any good? So Jonah leaves Nineveh. He goes out, sets up camp, and he's, he's waiting. Is, is God really going to spare these people? Maybe God will get angry and wipe them out. So he's sitting out there waiting, looking at the city, hoping, crossing his fingers, God, please change your mind and wipe these people out. So he builds this little booth for shelter. He's sitting under the shade of his shelter, drinking a lemonade or a West Coast thing, cactus cooler maybe. For some of you West Coast people. And then the Lord appointed. And this word has been used several times in, in, throughout Jonah. God appointed a plant to grow up. That's grace. To give him shade. Jonah gets excited about the shade tree. Great, I've got shade. And then the next day the Lord appoints a worm to eat the plant. And it dies. And then the Lord appointed an east wind to blow on Jonah, to chap his lips, and then the sun to cook his skin and make him all crisp and give him a sunburn. And how does Jonah respond to all of this? Things are well for a moment. He's crossing his fingers. Maybe the Lord will wipe out Nineveh. Maybe he'll change his mind. Great, I got this shade tree. Things are nice. And then the Lord appoints a worm. And the shade tree goes down. And then the wind comes, and then the sun comes. And how does Jonah respond? How does an uptight, angry, suicidal prophet who has chapped lips in a sunburn respond to his shade tree dying? You guessed it. He gets even more angry. 
and he wants to die. In fact, verse 8 says that he asked Yahweh if he could die. He says, can I please die? And then he told the Lord, it would be best if you let me die. You see, we are all like Jonah. We get mad when things happen. Some of us may even wish to die to escape our pain. And then we tell God what should be happening in our lives as if we were God. We, like Jonah, have control issues. Why does God do things like this in our lives? Why did God raise up a plant only then to raise up a worm, the wind, and the sun to beat down Jonah? Here's the answer. God graciously creates situations in our lives like Jonah, whereby he might save us from us. He sometimes creates situations, scenarios, circumstances, etc., in order that he might continue transforming us. I know what some of you are thinking right about now. I don't want God to do that. I don't want you to do that, God. I don't want you to create situations in my life that are very painful and hard in order to change me. Wouldn't it be great if there's a little sanctification pill you could take every morning? I take one with each meal. That's not how God works. In fact, there have been several times in my life where even my own family members got under my skin so bad. One time I remember clearly pastoring the church in Texas. I was having a very busy week of ministry. I'd done a, a morning devotional at a women's center on Monday. I did afternoons, uh, good news club uh, lesson for them. I had an elder meeting that Monday night. Wednesday I had a chapel message to deliver at the school that was at our church. Wednesday night I had a WANA lesson to give. Sunday I had a Sunday school lesson to prepare and a sermon to prepare. And on top of that there was a funeral. I mean, I was stressed out if there is. It's one of those weeks where you think nothing else could happen that could put me over the edge because I'm there. Well, I came home and I just wanted to veg out. I just wanted to turn on the TV and kind of escape into some other show and and live there for 42 minutes, fast-forwarding the commercials. You know, I'm sitting there. The kids started fighting. I don't know, something involving the dog. I don't remember, but this is what I remember. I screamed out to the Lord. I don't want to be transformed right now. I want a break from sanctification. Just let me have the day off. I pulled a Jonah. I pulled a Benji Magnus. Listen, God loves us too much to leave us alone. God loves us too much to let us wallow in self-pity and sin and selfishness. His grace is relentless. Why? Because God wants to save you from you. And God wants to save me from me. Jonah needed to learn that the Lord was using a people that he did not like in order to bring about transformation in his life. And God was using a well and a wind and a plant and a worm and the sun to transform Jonah. And God does that in our life too. He uses situations and scenarios. He will use creation. Maybe not so much here on the, on the West Coast because the weather's nice here. He takes it away in the fall and we all complain, don't we, when it gets to 80? He uses the weather, he uses people, he uses all kinds of situations to to arrest our attention 
and to continue transforming us and conforming us to the image of his son. And sometimes he uses people that we don't like. For Jonah, it was the Ninevites. Who are the Ninevites in your life? The people that you can't stand. Understand this. Ministry involves loving people that you didn't handpick. Ministry involves loving people that you did not handpick. You, didn't, you don't get it. You don't have a say-so in who you get to do ministry with. You don't have a, a say-so in who you get to do church with. You don't have a say-so in the family life or your work environment or your neighbors. You don't get a say-so because ministry is all about ministering to people that you do not get to handpick. You don't get to pick and choose who you're in small group with or Sunday school or the person working in the next cubicle next to you or your neighbor who lives next to you or across the street. God does all of the choosing because he's got your number and he knows everything in your life that needs to be changed. And he has all these agents out there that he will bring across your path in order to make you more like his son. He may bring someone into your life so that you will be a blessing to them. And even though they get on your nerves, it's a testimony to God's relentless grace to save you from you. Who are the people in your life that you don't want to minister to? Family member, neighbor, co-worker, somebody in your Sunday school class that frankly you can't stand, maybe somebody sitting on the other end of the pew from you. God put these people in your life to change you, to save you, to transform you. God has a rescue plan for your life. He uses people in circumstances to keep gospel growth happening in your life. God has a rescue plan that's tailored just for you. Sometimes it involves kids who don't want to go to bed. Sometimes it involves kids that don't want to get ready for school. Sometimes it involves a spouse. You fill in the blank in your life. God wants to save you from you. He's not merely interested in forgiving your sins. He does that, Christian. But he wants to change you. And that's grace. Don't don't you love God that he just doesn't save you from your sin and from his coming wrath and he just throw you in the corner and say, I'll deal with you when Jesus comes back. Don't you love a God that loves you so much and says, I want to change you. I want your life to be a testimony to reflect redemption and reflect my glory and reflect my grace. Don't you love a God like that? I would, I would never create a God like that. I would create a God that says, I'll forgive you. Now live any way you want to and you get to be with me in heaven. That's the kind of God I would create. But the God of the Bible says, you know, not only does grace forgive the bad things you do, My grace transforms you out of the bad thing that you are. There's more to the book of Jonah. That is Jonah chapter 4, but there's more. Look at verse 10. And the Lord Yahweh said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. 
which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And shouldn't not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The Lord begins to press in deeper to Jonah here because Jonah cared for this measly plant that he didn't plant, he didn't water it, he didn't take care of it. It was here today, gone tomorrow. The Lord presses in. Now notice the contrast here. Jonah cares about a plant. And Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, cares about people. Should not Yahweh care for the 120,000 Ninevites? They They were his creation. Do they not have more value as human beings created in the image of God than a plant? But notice too, Yahweh cares for the cattle. Here is a picture of the mission of God. The mission of God is not merely to redeem people. The mission of God is to redeem all of creation. So when we talk of mission and missions, don't leave out the fact that God is making all things new. He is not going to just redeem humans and place them on a new earth that's just, you know, all white with like fog machines and everybody wearing white robes and it's all white. I wear black. That doesn't sound appealing to me. God is redeeming all of creation. I want to be with my God on the new earth where I can see swim with sharks See dinosaurs, look at the birds, walk up to a lion and not get eaten, run through poison oak and not have it spread all over my body. I want to worship the God of creation who's making all of the universe brand new. So when we talk of mission and missions, God, yes, God is redeeming the people. Yes, that's why we're handing out these global outreach prayer directories. God is redeeming a people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue, but God is redeeming the entire universe. That's the God that we serve. And he says, Jonah, I even care about the cattle. I want to be with God on the new earth and experience creation as it was meant to be, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And it's only through the gospel that God redeems people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. And it is only through the gospel that God redeems all of creation. In Colossians 1, chapter 5, uh, Colossians 1, verse 15 through 23, says that in Christ, God is restoring all things. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, which means creation is for him. And he's going to make it new and recreate it because all of creation, sharks, dinosaurs, you name it, is for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God is going to redeem all of creation. And God is in the process of redeeming you right now because God wants to save you from you. And God wants to save you from God. The reality is that we are all born sinners. We are all rebels. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus lived a perfect life and died in our place to bring us to God, to redeem us and to transform us. He came to make all things new. But if you've never confessed your sins and repented and felt sorrow and remorse for breaking a holy God's commands, and you've never repented and trusted in Jesus, then you have nothing to look forward to but experiencing the wrath of Almighty God for eternity in hell. God wants to save you from God because he's coming one day to judge the world. But God can save you from yourself and ultimately from himself and his righteous holy anger if you repent You admit you have rejected God. There's remorse and sorrow for sin and you turn to Jesus and you trust in him as the only way to be made right with God. We've been with this runaway recalcitrant prophet for six weeks. What happened to Jonah? What happened to the suicidal prophet who wanted to get out of the prophet business? What happened to the prophet that we saw in chapter 1 who said, I worship Yahweh, the maker, the God of the sea and dry land. That's his first words. His last words are, I want to die. Kind of a picture of us and our roller coaster life of sanctification, right? I worship you, Lord. I want to die. And just back and forth. What happened to Jonah? We don't know. The book of Jonah ends abruptly. We get no closure on Jonah and his anger at the repentance of the Ninevites and Yahweh's compassion on the city. But why? Why why does the bottom seem to fall out of this story? We don't get closure on Jonah because this book is ultimately not about Jonah. This book is about the character of the main character. This book is about Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. This book is about the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This book is about the Lord. This book is about Jesus. This book is about the God of Jonah 4.2. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. That's the gospel. These words are for us sinners, rebels. Just as these words were for the Israelites after they had worshipped the golden calf, just as these words were for Jonah after his pity party, anger, and suicidal thoughts, these words are for us. God is gracious. God is merciful to us. God is slow to anger. God has a long nose. It takes a long time for his nostrils to flare up. 
God is abounding in steadfast love, that never giving up, never stopping, unending, always and forever love. And God relents from sending disaster. And he does so because of Jesus. He does so because of the gospel. The hope of the gospel message is that God wants to save you from you. So next time God is doing something that you don't like and people are getting under your skin, remember, God is wanting to transform you right there in that moment. When your kids don't want to go to bed, there's something bigger going on than your kids going to bed. God wants to deal with your heart in that moment. When you've got a coworker who drives you nuts, instead of checking out next time and being angry, stop and say, God, change me, transform me. Right there, in that moment, God wants to change you. And when he does, it is grace, relentless grace, stubborn grace that never gives up. And when God begins transforming your life, he gets glory. And that's why he made the entire universe, to display his glory. So as he transforms you a little bit at a time, day by day, his glory goes on display. And that's what the universe is about. And that's why he wants to save you, to display his glory as the God of relentless grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your relentless grace that pursues us and hunts us down. Thank you, God, for those times when we're like Jonah, that you're still working. Forgive us, God. Everything that you're doing in our life is for our good and is designed to bring you glory. And there's times that we, we, we dig our heels in. God, forgive us of that. But thank you. You're so merciful when we do. Time and time again, God, we resist your transformation process, your rescue plan. Time and time again, we, we kick against it, God, and, and you're, you're so long of nose to us. You're amazing, God. Amazing that you could forgive us and amazing that you slowly and patiently and mercifully and graciously transform us and conform us to the image of your son, God, because we could never conform ourselves into his image. It is a supernatural, miraculous work of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that it would continue in our lives, individually, in our families, in our church, in our workplaces, and in this city, all the way to the nations. Get glory As you transform us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.